0: Deborah, Barrack, Jail and Sisera, Judges Chapter 5, a song of celebration of a famous victory. What has this got to do? What light does this shed for us on the things that put pressure and tension into the life of rural communities in the heart of Wales to this day? Welcome to the A Group podcast, where we're looking at Judges Chapter 5 in a farm meeting Inland dialogue. The people of God are oppressed by the Canaanites, which is a bad thing because they were supposed to come into the Promised Land. You know, they should have been on top of the Canaanites. God said, you go out and take on the Canaanites and I'll be there for you and you'll smash them a bit. And it went the other way around because Jabin was this king and he was oppressing, the Canaanites were oppressing the Israelites. It was all about face. And the trouble with that is that can it can feel like that sometimes as Christians it feels like everything's gone about faith we should we shouldn't be struggling with this one God said X Y Z why well because they'd abandoned God you abandon God and God's not there for you and it goes pear shaped pretty smartly from there on in yeah and then the people oppressed by the Canaanites the people of Israel cried out to God in their trouble for twenty thirty years until God spoke to Deborah and Deborah says to Barak you go lad you know call the armies of israel together get this thing cracking get out there and smash his canine bits the way you're supposed to and um the trouble the trouble with that was barak said yeah i'll go but you got to come with me i am not going without the voice piece of god coming with me to lead me and guide me all the way and everybody says okay god uses a woman deborah to lead israel because the men were all wimps it's not that is that Barrett was a faithful guy. And he said, I'm not going unless I hear from God about it every step of the way. I'll take it on. I'm up for the challenge. Yes, I will go. But you're going to have to come with me, prophetess, because God is speaking through you. And she says, "Okay, but the the, the, the honour for the victory will not be yours. You realise that. There's no honour in this for you. It won't be you that actually strikes the blow. Off they go. God goes out in front of them. They do the business on the battlefield. The blow Cicero is the commander of the Canaanite armies off on his toes away from the battlefield comes to this tent where Jael is. And there is a treaty between the Canaanites and the family of Jael. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Cicero goes to the tent and says, you know, give me rest. I'm shattered. I've been running all day. And, uh, because yeah, come in and gives him a drink of milk and all that, and lie down here under this cloak and lies down. And then she takes a tent peg and a mallet and drives a mallet straight through his temple into the floor, and pins him to the ground, and kills him dead outright like that. Which is an act of supreme treachery against, you know, the treaties and whatever else. But God has used this godly woman Deborah and this treacherous woman who who is not an Israelite to pin sort to the floor with a tent peg through his head. And uh, God's used all that because the people of God have turned back to God. Because they've sought him in their trouble and they've obeyed what he tells them to do through the prophet. They've turned themselves round and God's gone out for them. God stood up for them and gone, right, now then, gosh, we'll sort that problem out. Mm. And what they do next is, Judges 5, verse 1, On that day, Deborah and Barak, Deborah the prophetess, Barak, the commander of the army. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Huh? It's not bad. It's a strange thing to do. You should be off, revelling, feasting, having parties, enjoying the spoils of war. I not know. Let's have a singing song. It's not quite like that, but that's how it goes, right? And they sing this celebration, this victory song we'll come to that in a minute now I can break that victory song down for you in judges five uh verses one to two there's an invitation to praise and verses three to five there's this description of the intervention of the almighty and verses six to eight there's the effect of the canaanite oppression before god stepped in and then verses nine to eleven there's this invitation to testify to what god has done when he does step in and then verses 12 to 18, there's this recounting of the roll call of the tribes going out to war. And then verses 19 to 22, there's this overwhelming of the Canaanites that takes place and they end up underwater, you know, drowning. And the river crossing doesn't go well. And then verses 23 to 27, there are tales of treachery and loyalty. Right? And then verses 28 to 30, there's this scene in Cicero's household as his mother is waiting for news of his chariot coming and all the rest of it. She's behind the screen waiting and, you know, it's all, really entering into the sort of what would it have been like all around that imagining the background and the scene and so on great yarn and then this verse 31 there's this final chorus and i can go through that and you'd say oh that's very nice but it's not actually getting to the getting to the issue what you've got is an example of the right response to answered prayer here you've got to bear in mind the people were in terrible trouble and they cried out to God with sincerity. Right? And God stepped in and he answered their prayers. And there's an absolute, absolute rule throughout the whole thing. Nobody is taking credit themselves. Nobody's going there. Nobody's, nobody is anywhere near doing that. Here's an example of the right response to answered prayer. From a very tight corner they prayed and that comes out in the song. They were, they were getting devastated. They were in a situation where nobody could go out. Nobody could go about the place. The roads were deserted because the Canaanites were everywhere. You know, like highwaymen, pillaging, everything. They couldn't, they couldn't move. They couldn't breathe. And then there's this recounting of the faithful way that God has led his people. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai. Remember the mountain of Sinai was you know, quaking and shaking and covered in fire and cloud and smoke. And before the Lord, the God of Israel. Now in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travellers took the winding paths, back routes. Villages in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Until God stepped in, you see. Until God stepped in. In a faithful way, God hears and answers their prayer, and God steps in for those people. He puts some spine in them. He raises leaders who will work in his power, not their own. And he raises a people. Who will be led? And off it goes. In a faithful way, God had led his people. In a faithful way, Barak responded. Terrific. And that's all being recounted. And in a treacherous way, Jael slew Sisera, breaking every human loyalty clause. There was a treaty. She nailed him. Boom! tent peg, one blog straight to his head, straight to the floor. I thought you'd like this bit. Two pound hammer. Two pound hammer. She, had a, she had a, must have had a fair mallet putting a tent peg through a blog's head. I mean, think about that. Mm. She must have been some sort of woman. You wouldn't want to cross that one. But Deborah and Barak together end up singing this song. Because even through wicked people, treacherous people, such is the sovereignty of the sovereign God, that he achieves his purposes through the, the rebellious the wicked and the, the godless astonishing isn't it when people are against us when we're up against god's do, god's not doing nothing hmm. and this is the way that he sorted that situation so Deborah and Barak together sing this song celebrating verses two to three god-given leadership so why together? Why? Why are they doing this? Why together? Um, there's, there's, well, firstly, why together? There's, there's recognition of teamwork. None of this. Barrack was a wimp, and Deborah was marvelous, but only allowed to do this job as a woman because Barrack was useless. None of that school of interpretation. This was teamwork. Then why sing? Well, the ancient Near Eastern taunt song was what's known as a thing. So when you won a victory in battle or whatever, you would write a taunt song. Yay, we're great. Nay, you're rubbish. That sort of song. Right. And that was, that was, yeah, they did that. It was a cultural feature. And we see that sort of cultural feature in various manifestations of tribalism today, not least at the football stadium. All right. We you do. This is how tribes, this is how human nature is. And that sort of taunt song, it builds group identity and it heightens euphoria and it serves to strengthen bonds to the group by boosting the group's ego. It goes, boo sucks, we are great and you are rubbish. And that's the general way the lyrics go. Fair? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at a Scarlet supporter and a season ticket (laughs) holder. I'm just saying, you know, that is how it goes. (laughs) You know, when you sing the like it's like, yeah, we're great, you're rubbish. You know? scarlet army so that's the way it goes but not here in this song not in this song of deborah and Barak, not in this victory song this is not self-glorifying or opposition deprecating in the first place this song is god glorifying it gives god proper thanks for answered prayer The people had cried out under brutal subjugation for decades on end. And it's to rally the people, not to give glory to their leaders or to their tribal group, but to the God who had given victory. And he's the one who gets the honour for it. And also it does this. It records the theology of that victory for future generations. Now, This is important. This is Wales, right? Um, I was at this minister's conference this week. Uh, it's called the Eccentrics Conference, and they brought, brought a guy from, from Glasgow who's doing astonishing, ridiculous, beyond-the-edge things uh, on housing estates in, in, in that area. And uh, all, all strength, God bless him, and he's a guy who's been rescued from a terrible past in life and all the rest of it. And he's doing things that are just hurtful and difficult in a difficult context. Tremendous Christian work. And he, he's a bit of a cheeky, cheeky chappy. And on his, on his way down, before he... Um, before he crossed the border into Wales, he tweeted, like, you know, I'm off to Wales, I wonder how long before somebody uses the R word, revival, right? <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was okay to just pull his leg about that, you know, the first day, like, hang on, mate, has anybody used the R word yet? Not, you, you know, um, because Christians in Wales tend to be a little bit preoccupied with the past, with the history. And it can turn you off, but Christians are interested in their history, but only in so far as it reflects the dealings of God with his people, reveals his character, and records the way that they relate to him and he to them. That's why we're interested in history, when it teaches us about him, when it teaches us about what he's doing. Now, we may have a, a sort of a, you know, a, a worldly but not illegitimate interest in history as a subject, right? You might, you know, what's that king's name you're all into? Richard III. Richard III, yeah, right. So, him, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, goody-baddie under a car park somewhere. Don't know, but um, I think I've met them. Then, haven't they? So anyway, but him—you might be interested in that stuff. That's great. That's a hobby. That's brilliant. There's nothing wrong with that. But as Christians, we're interested in how God has dealt with the world, has dealt with people, has dealt with His people in the past, and so on. What it teaches about Him and how we relate to Him and what He's about and what where His heart is. Theology is taught at a popular level in recounting God's great deeds in the past, and and the yarns. I, I grew up with ancient relatives guys who could really tell a good yarn i mean you know as a kid being dragged up onto the knee of some ancient uncle he'd tell some yarn and generally they were vain empty tales greatly entertaining but theology is taught at a popular level like that and in poetry you know the sermon on the mount has got this tremendous poetic structure mm. the beatitudes have got this tremendous panel structure of eight you know, and it goes like that, and it's memorable, it sticks in the mind in stories, parables of the old and new testaments, great recountings like this of the great deeds of God, the song of, of uh, Moses, you know, the song of the sea. Um, in song, how does that work? Because it relates to the whole man, theology and scripture outside the letters of the new testament, but even there, there are songs. I mean, the, the Colossians 1 and so on, there's this tremendous hymn in Colossians 1 about Christ theology in scripture is dripping just dripping with the arts the arts poetry, song um, drama, why? because it engages more of the whole being of a person, it operates within that part of our bearing the divine image it covers creativity God is the creator, he's creative and we've got that in us because he's put it in us as he's made us like that and it, 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 it does that, it gets in there the creativeness of God right is reflected in the way it communicates and how we do our theology. And how does it do that here in this passage? Well, look at verse two. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Theology has been taught on the basis of what's just happened. Reflected on how God's been at work. These were what sort of days in Israel? What does Judges keep saying to characterize the days of the judges? There was no king, no king in Israel. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's what the book keeps saying to characterize the time. Israel had no king. Everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Was that a blessing? No. Because oh, whenever that happened, things went bad. Things like the king lights came along and oppressed you and you couldn't go down the street. You know. Did this, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, did it usher in days of great freedom and liberty? It didn't, you couldn't walk down the street. It brought terrible days of bondage and captivity to foreign kings. They didn't have a king of their own. They were in captivity to foreign kings. It's just awesome. And then they cried out to God and he gave them leaders to lead unequally the first bit of verse two people to follow that lead and who crucially was this down to who crucially was the one behind this last part of verse two praise the lord they say down to god to sort that out okay it was down to the faithful covenant keeping god so that being the case the song turns now to apply the obvious theological lesson it's down to god to sort this out how far have we got mm-hmm. celebrating god-given leadership verses two and three teaching divinely revealed truth verses four and five yeah verses four and five when you lord went out from seir when you went out when you marched from the land of edom the earth shook the heavens poured the clouds poured down water the mountains quaked before the lord the one of sinai before the lord the god of israel and it's that covenant name for god all the time the covenant king when our king, our God king went out. Strange to our ears, you've got, it's before the recital of the historic events that, you know, took place. You've got the theological conclusion first. It's when you went out. It's when you went out. It's when you did this. It's when you did that. There were these tremendous and powerful things. God went out. And then you get the recounting of the bits and pieces, the details of that. Hmm. Deborah and Barak and Jalen. And we reflect on those disorientating events through the song. And the things that bring to end a number of disorientating years in Israel's history, but we're given the conclusion to be drawn before the recital of those events that support the conclusion, which comes first. <laughs> it's like a disorientating way to approach it because they were terribly disorientating times, and the form of the poetry reflects the disorientation of the situation. Mm-hmm. There you go. That sort of thing. The conclusions are stuff in verses four and five, and there's the principle people are brought along in the action but it is when God marches out for you that things powerfully change give glory to God and then you get this great long discourse verses 6 to 30 the recital of God's salvation history what happened and it's not just telling you what happened it's entering into it and it's saying just think of Cicero's mum hiding behind the screen looking out every day for his chariot you know all that stuff going on to enter into the drama of the situation how powerfully evocative all this stuff is when God is at work when he takes action in unexpected ways does great great things and it tells the story just pause a minute tells the story I can't be better at telling the story because the story gives you the theology the theology is the important bit because that's the principle on which you then go and live and sort your life out there it lies when God went out when God's going out for you. I've got to tell those stories. And, you know, I did have uncles as a small child. They could tell stories well. So as they're told, you feel that you were there. Mm-hmm. Now, this conference I was at this week, it was a chap had come and he's a great guy. And he'd come and he'd done this talk. And he was trying to sort of say, all through scripture, when this happened, when that happened, when that happened, in this event, in this event, in this event, in scripture, you were there. And what he, I think, I hope, he was actually trying to say was there's elements of you in the people that are in this story telling us about how God is and how he oh. works and how he relates and just, just you're part of it to that extent, you know? Yeah. There are things in this that are also characterised by you and therefore it applies to you and these things are written for our learning. Now, he did go beyond that. He did say more than that and everybody could hear him saying more than that. So I checked and yeah, everybody thought, I thought he was saying that as well. I think he's gone too far. But there's a very important point These things are written for our learning. We do need to enter into these events. We do need to enter into these stories in the Bible and see where it's about us and see where it fits and touches us. And don't be afraid of the yarn. And don't be afraid of telling the story of God's dealings. The art to tell a story, that's missing. So people are engaged in both mind and spirit and moved to walk with God. Because it's not just a matter of briefly telling them some facts. It's engaging the whole person, right? And that's why preaching is different from teaching if you like Mm. I can teach you the facts here but actually is that going to move me is that going to change me is that going to change my motivations and disposition there's a very famous story told by a famous Welsh preacher of the late 18th century early 19th century called Christmas Evans no prizes for guessing what day his birthday was and he was a famous one-eyed preacher and it seems, it seems that he had an eye knocked out in a fight, but I just don't know, just don't know what happened there. Um, and uh, he's actually related to my great-grandmother's side of the family, apparently. However, uh, I've managed to hold of both my eyes, even though I am a preacher. And um, he tells this tremendous sermon. It's, in, it's been written down, it's in a book somewhere, and the collected sermons of Christmas Evans. And he tells this, he's got a whole sermon, where he tells a story about a crocodile, and that is the sermon. And it's terrific. Get a chance to have a look for it online or something. A Christmas Evans, <laughs> crocodile. <laughs> and it is just, you know, people didn't know much about crocodiles in those days, but you imagine captiv- <clears throat> Captivating. Just tell a story, show a truth. You don't have to tell a truth, you can show it. Yeah. So, anyway, that's what's going on. And then, in verse 31, having drawn you into the story, having engaged you emotionally and you know fully, the whole man, with the story, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then the land had peace for 40 years. That's a regular recurrence as well, isn't it? Yeah. The people wander away. They do what they think is right themselves. They go their own way. They do their own thing. It all goes belly up. They get oppressed. And they, then eventually in their oppression, they cry out to God. And God raises up a leader. And the leader comes and does X, Y, Z, an unusual thing. And God rescues the people. And that's great. And while that judge lives, they listen. The land has peace for 40 years because they're walking in God's way. And then, okay, we haven't got to that bit yet. Conclusion these people's experience of God and they walk with God and their renewed walk with God arose out of a terrible sense of oppression they were being dominated and pushed down and there is again a terrible sense of oppression taking hold again in our rural communities now you can go back in history, you can go back to the 1830s in Wales and and you can see how the turnpikes and the Rebecca riots right. and all that issue. You can see how people were in, in agriculture were feeling horribly oppressed, and they were being and it takes different forms in different ages. not long after that it was a massive turning back to God the eighteen fifty eight revivals in Wales and stuff in the same areas um, so to rebeccaism and the eighteen thirties Mertha politics thing sort of faded away into the Rebecca riots and the Rebecca riots kinda of faded away into chartism. This is very broad brush stuff. This is this is big years and noddy Welsh history. But um but you know, and that and then what happens? Eighteen fifty eight happens. After the Newport riots and all that. You get you get the you get the eighteen fifty eight revivals. Terrific. And then again, you know, that that sort of goes on and moves forward and the eighteen seventies is still pretty lively and then you get the turn of the century you get the wash forward movement and you know which comes to a head in nineteen oh four five, five and and you know that great revival there and so on great turning the garden in, in the urban centers there's a terrible sense of oppression taking hold again in our rural communities and is that the beginning of something well it, it ought to be But not everybody's seeing it yet. We're at the front cutting, bleeding edge of mission in these communities and it's evident and we're hearing these problems and it's rapidly getting stronger and whether it's bureaucracy or whether it's the crash in profitability of farm and business, whatever, in rural areas or the failure to ensure rural digital inclusion so that we can actually do stuff and learn a living or the perceived interference of urban and rural communities. There's a tremendous sense that the votes are in the towns and all the decisions are made for the towns and the the cities and stuff and the rural areas got no say there's the impact of urban environmentalist thinking on regulation and governance of rural business, farming, life there's country file on the telly which people feel horribly oppressed by because of the way it represents things uh, the badgerists the rewilders it's a terrible sense of oppression coming out of rewilding in continental Europe and in, and in, and in Wales there's concern about it in Scotland and the whole thing about the neonicotinoids how are you going to farm without that the whole thing about acylocks, how are we going to keep the bracken down? And these people are saying it's terrible, it's terrible, it's so if you can't have it. They don't have to live with the situations and the stuff we're dealing with. And there's the pressure of regulation and the low-level stress all the time of that regulation. The various regulatory authorities in the name of this, that, or the other urban concern repressing the rural community. There's a sense of that. Wherever you stand on these issues, the whole thing about genetic modification. Wherever you stand on any or all of those issues, there is this sense of oppression that is real, it's mounting. Militant vegans picketing abattoirs and livestock markets and threatening, unauthorized threatening incursions onto farms. Threatening and vilification through social media and through face to face. The things that happened in Veganuary. Have you heard of Veganuary? January was a month of celebrating veganism. So now they've come back with February. Dairy, right? <laughs> To try, and, to try and promote you know, dairy's ethical face and image and grass reared and all the rest of it. And the, the threatening behavior that's being encountered is just astonishing. It's adding to this real sense of incoming devastation. And I say this to illustrate this biblical principle that's being established here in the tale of Deborah and Barak. If you abandon the ways of God for doing your own thing, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you don't honor God, then guess what? verse 6 applies the land becomes a terrible fearful place to live that's what happens now that's what happens historically you can show that and you cry out to god that he would raise up godly faithful leaders and people to answer the call and god raises them up and marches out for you there's a terrible sense i find in rural communities that we are living in and working with and so on and so on who actually sticks up for us and if the rev says something on twitter that kind of sticks up for people a bit they go yeah, well done, Reverend. They feel tremendous <coughs> about it. No, that's, that's what we stating the case. I know it's great, great significance that I'm old. But there is that sense, right? You cry out to God for godly, faithful leaders better than the ones you've got and people to answer the call. God raises them up. God marches out for you. We sense, don't we, God? We need God to march out for us. And repeatedly, historically in Israel, this theology is brought to life in social and political reality. And when it is brought to life and when it does happen and people do cry out to God from that sense of oppression and, you know, Mm. there's what happens. And then the land had peace for 40 years. I'm suggesting that what our crisis hit rural community needs is to go back to pleading with God. How old-fashioned is that? Yeah. As old-fashioned as it is effective (laughs) through history. It's worked. You go back, you plead to God for his help with all of the things that it feels are oppressing you. For him to march out on behalf of his turning back to him people. Where's that coming from? I see bit, little bits. We see little bits. We see, I hear there was a great prayer meeting for farmers on Monday about the TB over in, in Bronneth. I'm told. Great. Superb. Praying for God to march out for his turning back people. Both things needed. Turning back. Plead with him to march out. So that those people, apart from, us, instead of this low-level stress, this constant looking over the shoulder, the, the constant concern about what the future holds for our, our rural life, our farming, our ways, our whatever it is, instead of all that that is, gr- is ri- really, really, honestly, is grinding people down the way people don't understand, it is low-level. Low-level stress is a killer, but it's much more than that. Physiologically, a killer is a destroyer of human humanity, of human life, crying out to God, turning back to him so that they might have cause once more to be bursting out with God-honoring song like the song of Deborah and Barrett. And we must pray for that. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, the A Group Podcast from a farm meeting in the rural heart of Wales. If we can be of any help to you, or if this has raised any issues for you, please don't hesitate to contact us through the website. You'll find a contact form there on the website at That's www.ehrgroup.com. And yes, thanks again for listening.